These transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look. There once was a man who had a vision for a new movie about a giant gorilla who became infatuated with a pretty young lady. It was in the 1930s, and it required movie effects that had not been done before. Pulling together a remarkable and dedicated team, they worked over a year inventing new ways to make an 18-inch model move, look 18 feet tall, and interact with real actors. When they finished, they would make a film that was like nothing anyone had seen before, a film that stood the test of time. Today I have the story of the men and women who made a movie that would be remembered for decades. King Kong on the 202nd episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Good Sunday morning to you. My name is Jeff, and for the next half hour or so, I'll be your storyteller. For those new to Coffee with Jeff, my name is Jeff, and I spend about two weeks researching a topic that I would like to know more about, and then I write it into a story that I hope you will enjoy. So King Kong... Like many, I saw this film as a boy and I loved it. To me, it was just a good monster movie. It never occurred to me that there might be racism within the movie. Maybe I watch it with blinders on, but I still watch it as just a good monster movie. Did the makers of this film intentionally put in racial overtones? I doubt that it was a conscious thing, but... Marion C. Cooper was born in the South and had a grandfather who fought for the Confederacy in the Civil War, so so I would guess that some of this came through, but I really don't know. I don't plan to go into this anymore, um, because to me it's just a great monster movie. Now with the actual making of the movie, there was no way I could actually tell it in a story form, beginning, middle, and end. So I divided the making of King Kong into separate sections, and I just pretty much tell stories that I found interesting about the making of this movie. There are more than I could possibly fit in here, so that's how it goes. All that being said, let's find out how they made the 1933 monster classic. Wild, weird, wonderful. The stuff for which movies were made. Adventure to make you wonder if it's true, while your eyes convince you that it is. Truly, the thrill of thrills. Don't miss it this time. I knew there was nothing a man could mentally conceive that the camera could not recreate or excel by any number of processes available. Frankly, I don't know the details of how we were going to produce these strange prehistoric animals and mingle them with real persons in modern settings, but I was able to secure the services of two men eminently fitted for the work to be done. One was Mr. Scholdsack, who made pictures with me before. The other was Willis O'Brien, who had done considerable work for the American Museum of Natural History in New York, a great artist and the greatest technician in the motion picture industry today. 
Marion C. Cooper, in an interview with Molly Merrick in The Daily Colonist, January 29, 1933. The Making of King Kong Special Effects Two separate productions were happening at the same time. The live-action footage, mostly done on a soundstage with Ernest Schuldsack directing, and in a closed studio, Willis O'Brien doing the grueling work of the stop-motion animation with Marion C. Cooper directing. O'Brien was going through a difficult time while the work was going on. He was married and had two sons. His wife Hazel had some serious mental issues and had attempted suicide twice. While the couple was never divorced, they were separated. He loved his two boys, but it was Hazel who retained custody. Hazel was stricken with tuberculosis and cancer, and his oldest son lost his eyesight from tuberculosis. While all this was going on, O'Brien kept working on the special effects for Kong. The ideas that Cooper imagined were beyond anything he had done before. Many thought they couldn't be done. O'Brien constantly had to invent new techniques for getting the shots needed. He would use every technique in the business and invent a few new ones. The primary process for creating Kong and the other creatures on Skull Island were done with stop motion. I know it may sound easy, just build a model out of clay, move it a little, take a picture, move it again, and do it over and over. Of course, it's not that simple. It not only has to look realistic, but it has to fit seamlessly into the live action. Experience is the only teacher, O'Brien once said. Each new set is an individual problem and requires separate treatment. There are no set rules of method by which you can classify all the miniatures. Now, before any stop-motion work could begin, they had to create the models. Marcel Degado got the job of making the creatures. He was a Mexican native who had known O'Brien since 1923 when the two had met in an art class. O'Brien hired Delgado to work on The Lost World. He began King Kong by making clay models of Kong. Once he knew what the creature looked like, he built a metal skeleton with ball and socket joints so it could bend like actual bones. Using rubber, he made muscles and covered the creature with latex. Next, all the features were added, like rabbit fur for Kong, and things like plates and horns for the dinosaurs. For some of the models, he added air bladders that would give the effect of breathing. The mighty Kong was only 18 inches high, each inch representing a foot. That means Kong in the film would be 18 feet high. And Delgado would build multiple Kongs since they needed constant repair, and the animation didn't have time to stop and wait. He also constructed people that were six inches tall. These were for the scenes where Kong does things like eat them and throw them off buildings and such. One second of film takes 24 frames, a new standard implemented after the addition of sound to film. 16 frames had been the standard for silent films. That meant that O'Brien and his team had to shoot a lot more images than they had to do on The Lost World. On a good day, they could get about 20 seconds of film completed. That doesn't mean they had 20 seconds of usable footage. There were many times when, viewing the footage the next day, they discovered the film was unusable and had to be reshot. There was a story in which a real plant they used for set dressing had a flower that bloomed while they were filming. No one noticed till they reviewed the footage. There in the shot was a time-lapsed flower popping open. Now while the animation was going on, the room was closed off. No one was allowed to enter or leave to avoid upsetting the stage. Light bulbs had to be changed before each scene started. 
This is because the bulbs, as they were being used, would change in intensity. So if a bulb burnt out during a scene, the scene was ruined because changing a bulb would change the intensity of the light. They also discovered that leaving before a shot was finished and then continuing it the next day didn't work. When they reviewed the footage, the break was noticeable. So once they started, they couldn't stop till it was completed. Sometimes they were required to work 20 hours to finish one shot. Some complete scenes took quite a long time to complete, like the fight between Kong and the Tyrannosaurus. That took weeks to finish. One of the main problems they had, and O'Brien and Delgado were aware of this when they started, was the fur. Every time they moved Kong, the fur changed with the pressing of fingers. It's very noticeable in the final film. And then there's the problem all stop-motion animators had since stop-motion was first created, the lack of motion blur to the images. The natural blur that occurs during filming isn't present in stop-motion. Again, O'Brien was aware, but there was little he could do. And of course, adding these shots to the live-action was itself a challenge. Many techniques were used to combine the live actors with the animation, such as rear screen projection, in which the animation was done first, then projected behind the actors. It seems simple enough. You project a film on a screen, usually a piece of sandblasted glass, behind the actors and have them act in front of it. But before King Kong, the effect was rarely convincing. The biggest issue was having two cameras in sync, the projector showing the rear screen footage and the camera shooting the new footage had to have their shutters open and closed at the exact same moment. Otherwise, the footage would flicker. New cameras and projectors were created to ensure a steady, reliable, synchronized frame rate. And also the glass that was used was very fragile and caused severe injuries in the past when it had fallen and broke. This problem was solved with a new flexible, non-breakable screen called Saunders screen. The new screen was safer and distributed light better, avoiding hot spots, which often happen with glass. While rear screen projection allowed actors to act with stop motion, other times it was necessary to do the opposite by projecting the actor's footage with a small projector one frame at a time. Then they could create stop motion along with the actors. This was used in the scene where Bruce Cabot is hiding in a cave after Kong has knocked the other sailors off a log into the ravine. Also, when Cabot and Fay Ray are in King Kong's cliff-top home. All these techniques required painstaking preparation to keep all the elements the same. They had to keep track of things like the lenses, exposure, lighting, camera angles, and such. For some shots, a miniature Kong would not do. With the help of his brother, Delgado created a life-size head, shoulder, and chest. It took three men using compressed air to operate the ears, eyes, and the rest of the face. And they also created a full-size hand and arm for shots when Kong is holding Fei Rei and a giant foot for stamping on men. There were some shots that used the full-sized hand combined with the 18-inch animated Kong, such as the scene where Kong attempts to disrobe Fei Rei. These are only a couple of the methods used. There were many more, but in the end, I think it was a very impressive job by Willis O'Brien and his crew. I watched it a couple of times for this podcast, and I still find myself being very impressed. The Making of King Kong, Naming the Film One thing I didn't touch on in Part 1 of King Kong was how they arrived at the name. Early on, they just called it The Beast, and then The Eighth Wonder. 
Cooper had a liking for short names, and he also liked the idea of names that started with a hard K sound. Some of his favorite words were Komodo and Kodak. Early on, he imagined his beast fighting a Komodo dragon on Komodo Island. Thinking of Komodo along with Congo, he came up with the name Kong. Selznick thought the audience would believe that the film, with a one-word title, would be mistaken for the docudramas like Grass and Chang, films that Cooper had done earlier. In a memo dated January 22, 1933, Selznick suggested the name Jungle Beast. But Cooper wanted a mystery word, as he described it. The name of the leading, mysterious, romantic, savage creature of the story, in the manner of Frankenstein or Dracula. Archeo sent a memo to Cooper suggesting the titles Kong, King of the Beasts, Kong, the Jungle King, and Kong, the Jungle Beast. Cooper eventually took the king and added it to Kong's name, and everybody was happy. The making of King Kong, the script. They began filming even though they had yet to complete a script. The reason was not everybody at RKO was enthusiastic about the film. Some highly placed executives at RKO wanted to stop it. So the film quickly went into production, Cooper not daring to wait. In part one, I mentioned that Ruth Rose, the wife of Shack, wrote 90% of the dialogue. Cooper knew she was the right person when she removed several pages of dialogue at the beginning that set up the voyage, and she replaced it with one line, the first line in the movie. Say, is this the moving picture ship? With those seven words, she succeeded in getting the story going. And besides adding a lot of realistic dialogue, she also had the ability to trim a lot of the script and just get to what was necessary. Another example of this is when she took out a long explanation of how they got Kong to New York. It was all changed to Carl Denham saying, He has always been king of his world, but we'll teach him fear. We're millionaires, boys. I'll share it with all of you. Why, in a few months, it'll be up in lights on Broadway. Kong, the eighth wonder of the world! And then it fades to those same words above a Broadway theater. Rose realized that there was no need to show the voyage. RKO executives were also concerned about the language of the natives on Skull Island. In the film, it was said that they used the Nias Islanders speak. Afraid to offend anyone, RKO censors wanted English translations for each phrase. Rose, even though she thought the chances of the film playing on the remote Palau Nias Island was remote, she did just as she was ordered. She explained each sentence, such as, which translates to a gift for Kong, which translates to, I will give six women like this for your woman of gold. Another point of disagreement between Cooper, Soldsack, and the RKO executives was when to introduce Kong to the story. The executives wanted Kong to show up right away. But Cooper and Soldshack had other ideas. They knew the film needed a slow, deliberate build-up to maintain the viewer's suspension of disbelief. The viewer must be swept along with the action. In the final film, Kong doesn't make his appearance until over 40 minutes has gone by. The Making of King Kong Shooting the Film Bay Ray has brown hair. Cooper always imagined Andero as a blonde, so Fay Ray wore a blonde wig throughout the whole film. I'm guessing the reason why a wig and not dyeing her hair was so she could work on other projects at the same time. 
You see, it took eight months to complete the live action, although most of the actors weren't filming for all that time. There were long breaks while the effects department caught up with the live action. Fay Ray was able to shoot two other films in between the time she was needed. She estimated the time she actually worked on Kong was about 10 weeks. Now, something like this wouldn't be possible today with the Screen Actors Guild. Before then, you could pay actors for only the times that they were actually on set shooting. And at one point, they almost lost their leading man. Bruce Cabot was talking to one of the stuntmen one day while relaxing. The stuntman asked him, What are you supposed to be playing in this crazy picture? They tell me I'm the leading man, Cabot responded. Then they lied to you, the stuntman told him. You're just doing the rough stuff for Joel McRae while he's finishing that other picture. The other man standing around agreed. Cabot didn't believe it at first, but when he discovered that the stuntmen were being paid more than he was, he began to believe the rumors. It was also announced at one point that McRae had been given the lead in the film. It got too much for Cabot, and he went up to Cooper and said he was leaving the production. But what about Kong? Cooper said, completely in shock. You can shove Kong, Cabot yelled before walking away. Cooper found Cabot just before he left town and said, Yes, the studio did announce Joel McRae was to star in Kong, but that didn't work out. Don't go, Cooper said. You'll ruin us if you walk out now. Bruce Cabot did return. Unfortunately, it never occurred to him till later to ask for more money now that he knew how much he was needed. And a little bit about Fay Ray. Not only was that her real name, but she seemed to be a special person. Robert Armstrong, who played Carl Denham, said in an interview a few years before he died, Phyllis Haver was a sweet, lovely girl. She was almost as nice as Faye, but of course, nobody is that nice. When they began to film the New York scenes, in which Kong is running around causing all types of trouble, Cooper ran into a problem. Kong, compared to the city buildings, looked way too small. He ordered a larger 24-inch Kong created. O'Brien was appalled at Cooper's callous disregard for continuity. But it was Cooper's film, so it was done the way he wanted it done. It's been pointed out many times that Kong's size in relationship to the background changes during the film. This wasn't a mistake. It was intentional by Cooper. There were many doubts, even with some of the people working on the film, that it would work. Even co-director Ernest Schuldschack had his doubts. I didn't think it would be a very good picture, he said, so I decided to keep it moving fast so nobody would notice. If a scene lasted 30 seconds, I'd say, I think it would play just as well in 20 seconds. We didn't know what a good picture we had until it was finished. One last casting decision Cooper made were the two men flying the plane that finally kills Kong. He told Shodshak, let's kill that son of a bitch ourselves. The men in the plane at the end are the two filmmakers. And then, of course, we have to talk about the famous spider pit sequence. It follows the adventures of the men who are shaken off the log by Kong and tumble into the gorge. Some say this sequence was never filmed, but production stills seem to indicate otherwise. It was a horrific sequence in which men are attacked by giant spiders, lizards, and insects. After an early showing of the film, Cooper thought the scene stopped the film dead. It took audiences away from what they were supposed to be thinking about, and that was Andero. 
The effect of the men screaming horribly as they fell was enough. When they finished editing the film, it came out to 13 reels. Cooper was horrified as he had a fear of the number 13, so he ordered one more scene to be added to make 14 reels. That was the scene in which the elevated train is attacked by Kong. The Making of King Kong Sound Once the film was in the can and the editing process began, it went to the remarkable Murray Spivak to create the sound effects. For the sound of Kong beating his chest, a few things were tried, such as a kettle drum and beating a cane chair with a drum mallet, but nothing was right. It was finally accomplished by Spivak's assistant holding a microphone on his back while Spivak hit him in the chest. Kong's distinctive roar was done by taking the recording of a roar of a lion and the roar of a tiger. He made several variations of these, running the tape backwards, slowing them down and such, and put them together. The Tyrannosaurus was a modified puma scream, and bird squeaks were used for the pterodon. Kong's footsteps were plungers covered with pads hitting gravel, and the grunts of Kong were Spivak himself, recorded through a megaphone and slowed down. Now, I don't want to spoil the illusion for you, but most of Fay Ray's screams were added in post. If she were required to scream as much on set as she did in the film, she would have quickly lost her voice. Ray had to spend a whole day screaming in a sound booth to get the right screams for the right moments. She said, When I first saw the picture, I thought the screams were overdone, but they were an important part of the picture, and I was delighted with how it all looked. My scenes with Kong were exactly the way I imagined. Her screams were so good they would be used in the sequel Son of Kong, even though she wasn't in the film. The Making of King Kong, The Music when King Kong was made, sound films were relatively new. The jazz singer was only five years before, and that had limited sound. The most dangerous game, RKO's previous film, was their first film to have sound throughout. So the idea of an original music score was never done. Kong would be the first. Max Steiner was hired to create the music, but for budgetary reasons... He was told to recycle some of his old music, rather than composing new stuff. Cooper insisted on a total original score, so he paid Steiner $50,000 of his own money. It took six weeks, and Steiner used a 64-piece orchestra. The studio was so impressed, they would later repay Cooper the money. Kong would be the first feature-length American talkie to have an original musical thematic score, rather than just background music. Eventually, everything was put together, and King Kong was released on March 2nd, 1933. And that's where part three of the story will pick up in two weeks. It'll be about Kong's success, the censorship that followed, and of course, all the King Kong sequels and remakes that came after. Join us, won't you? It's the, 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 end, the final scene that really always stays in my mind once I've seen the film. That is a magical kind of image. The Empire State Building and Kong, just those two when he's being shot down. And uh, I feel so touched and so caring. My 
throat fills up and, and I feel sad for him. It doesn't seem so much to do with me as it has to do with his capacity to have an affection for something that he saw that he thought was lovely. And he becomes like a real person in that moment. And I think there's a, there's a magic in, in that motion picture making that achieved that. So I don't mind being attached to that film. A little bit before I go... Willis O'Brien, the man responsible for the effects in Kong, would go on to be a mentor to another stop-motion pioneer, Ray Harryhausen. However, I feel I should follow up on the story of his wife and sons, and it's not a happy story. Soon after Kong was released, he was working on Son of Kong when tragedy happened. His wife Hazel shot and killed both his kids and then turned the gun on herself. Strangely, she survived, but died in a prison hospital sometime later. Sad, I know. Anyway, I know a lot of King Kong experts out there might listen to this and say, wait a minute, you left this out, or that, and what about this, and whatever. The thing is, I put in as much as I could while keeping to the format of this show. Much of it was from the book, The Making of King Kong, the story behind a film classic by Orville Golder and George Eugene Turner. I recommend that book if you want to know more. But now, how about the ending credits? You've been listening to Coffee with Jeff, a Zeus Brothers Entertainment podcast. Links to all the sources that I used to write today's episode are available at Transistor.fm's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. You can find a link on the Coffee with Jeff website. If you've got a few coins and could afford to donate to keep this show going, I'd appreciate it. You can do so by contributing to my Patreon page. Just go to coffeewithjeff.com for more information. And tell your friends about it, won't you? You can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that I'd love you to join. And you know, I'm always looking for story ideas, so keep me informed. I'd like to thank my wife of 36 years for being my wife of 36 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickert for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, And to all of you who listen to the show, thank you very much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost this on social media. You have a special place in my heart. I'll be back in two weeks with part three, the final part of King Kong. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. Okay.
dawn of just new day. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee for coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee for coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee for coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee and coffee with Jeff. Yeah.